Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8 is where we're at this morning. And I'll just add my own word of welcome to everyone watching online, to those here, and uh, to Dr. Kaufman. Thank you for being here. We've been working through Romans. We're kind of stuck in Romans 8, but it's a, it's a good stuck and not a bad stuck, hopefully. Let's get right to it. Romans 8, and begin reading in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else, And all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. That is the word of God. Let's let's pray together. Father, you tell us in your word that, that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who sympathizes with us in our weakness. And then, and this morning, in light of my task, I find great comfort in the fact that, Jesus, you do not condemn me in my weakness, but you sympathize with me. So now I lean hard on you, for when I am weak, as I am now, then I am strong. And may it be the same for everyone listening, that you will be honored and you will be praised as the brilliance of your self-disclosure in these verses deserve. And it is for Jesus' sake that we ask this, amen. I'd like you to think with me, if you're married... Can you imagine on the day of your wedding anniversary having an argument with your spouse about your love for each other? I mean, wouldn't that be terrible? It's a day to remember the beginnings of your love and rejoice in that your love has been kept and you would argue about it. You know, when did it start or who loved who first? Or let's say you're dating and I think this is so cute. You have your four-month anniversary, right? And I had that joy once, only once. And I think it's something that makes young love so precious. But wouldn't it be just awful to have an argument on your four-month anniversary about your love for each other? I mean, who does that? Or let's say it's your birthday. Today's my son's birthday. And let's say we did our family Zoom and we had a huge argument on Zoom, online, about who loves who and when and all the love that we had for each other. Who does that? I mean, wouldn't that be terrible? I mean, I'm sure it's happened and it's happened to you. I'm terribly sorry. But still, 
I mean, those occasions are supposed to be marked by love, right? It is your love story. And you recall in the most intimate detail of how it all began. And you celebrate uh, your love has been kept over all these years. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be affirming and joyful and stabilizing and assuring. And it's supposed to be soothing. It's love. I mean, why wouldn't it be? So if you think about it, if it's terrible and a bit weird to argue about your love for each other, why in the world would Christians argue about God's love for them? Argue about its extent. Argue about its certainty. Argue about its origin, its indestructibility, and its determination and its destination for our salvation. Why? Why would Christians do that? And who then would try to weaponize God's love for his people as described here in Romans 8? Who would do that? What, what spirit is that? I mean, you understand, who would dare make this purposely a point of division just to stir up trouble or use it to make trouble or make your point? What spirit is that? Or you know this question, do you take the Bible literally? Okay, That question is a big question, and it ignores all the nuances and all the gradations of the Bible. It's too ambiguous a word to lay flat on biblical interpretation. And sometimes all that means is you pick a side and you make it quick. And so please, as we consider these verses and these God-given words, which are supposed to assure us of God's love, his indestructible love, verse 28, called, verse 28, purpose, verse 29, foreknew, predestined. As you consider all those words, one, remember, they're not my words. They're God's words. And second, will you please consider the words of God also from 2 Timothy 2. And 2 Timothy is a pastoral epistle from God through Paul to Timothy, a pastor, and it's given for the direction of the church. If you like, this is God's way to do God's church. And this is what God says through Paul. 2 Timothy 2.14, warn them, Pastor Timothy, Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins. We get our English word catastrophe from the Greek word there. It only ruins those who listen. It ruins listeners when we quarrel about words. Same chapter, verse 16, Paul continues and says, Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in godless chatter will become more and more ungodly. Chapter 2, verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Verse 14, about words. And even Peter, and 2 Peter 2, says of false teachers, in their desire for advantage, in their greed for applause, greed for a following, they go beyond God's will, which means they go beyond God's word. In other words, you know, they really don't mind to fight. Indeed, they're probably for look, looking for one. They like the applause. They like the juice that they feel when you're in debate. Now, those verses I just read do not mean we can skip these verses. <laughs> we will not. And they don't mean that we cannot talk about these verses. We can. But it does mean that we're not trying to weaponize these verses, stir up trouble, or if we do, our listeners will be ruined. Nor, and this is important, nor are we, you know, kind of roam the halls 
you know, cornering, Christ, cornering Christians who have no arguments over these verses because, frankly, there are people now and in other places and other times, we're going we're gonna to learn this this morning, who have no difficulty at all with these verses. And, and Christian, if you would like to keep your understanding of this to yourself, or even if you're just trying to develop that understanding, by golly, God lets you. That is your freedom, and you enjoy it. Now, as we said, these verses read have one main goal, and that is to assure the Christian that nothing in all creation, which means everything, right, can't separate us from God's love. And that's the kind of God we serve. He wants us to know he loves us always in Christ. And the explanation that he gives, it is immeasurable. So once a person is connected with God through Christ, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. And because God's love is in Christ, we have every legitimate right to expect that what Paul says is true. Nothing can separate you from his love. Three lines to work under. He loved you. So you love him now. He called you for his purpose. He knew you before you knew him. Number one then, first of all, he loved you. So you love him now. Now, remember the context here is suffering as a Christian. And because suffering and our devotion to Jesus can be awfully hard and awfully difficult, but true to every true Christian's existence, Paul has been giving encouragements about suffering throughout the letter. And verse 28 is a big one. He begins by telling us, as we've been saying in everything, and we learned this last week, in every second of every day, and the good things and the bad things, the bad things which come to us, the bad things which come out of us, and just even in the normal days, if we have such days, and all things, and every stitch of time, God works all things for the good, not for everyone, but for those who love him. So first, let's think biblical here, Right? Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. There is no more absolute proof of God's love for the Christian than the fact that we love him. And that is a truth we find in 1 John 4. Because love always begins with God, right? Love always begins with God. This is what 1 John 4, 19 says. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. In other words, first we were loved by God, and therefore we can love God. That's important. That's why our heading is, God loved you, and I'm going to inject the word first, so you love him now, which is actually the sense of the Greek here. You see, Paul's not writing in a challenging way, you know, are you loving God enough? Who in their right mind would say yes to that question? However, what would the Christians say? We would say, thank God Jesus Christ's love stands before the Father on our behalf as if we love God just like Christ and his love is perfect. That's imputed righteousness. That's justification. Praise God for that truth. So this text here is not challenging. Quite the opposite. It's an explanation. Meaning love is God. Loving God is one of the, one of the things it means to be a Christian. Right? He's just explaining it. Love for God is an action that takes place repeatedly in the Christian life. I mean, you know, if you're asking the question, what does it mean to be a friend's own? Well, one of the things it means to be a friend's own, and you know this, is we like to take walks. You can't be a friend's own if you don't like to take walks. You can't be a Christian if you don't love God. Christians love God because God loved them first. I love God. I love God. I'm trying to love him better. And I bet you love God. I bet you do. And because we love God, we love what God loves. God loves forgiveness. God loves reconciliation. 
God loves generosity. God loves evangelism. So does the Christian. God loves you. So do I. God loves me. So do you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we love serving one another in love because we love God. We love God in our obedience to God from his word. We show our love for God when we trust him to protect us, when we believe him for his righteousness and forgiveness. And when we extend forgiveness to others, we're just showing that we love God. And we love to commune with God, right? Because we love God. We love God because we pray to him and we believe his promises. We love his truth. We love his church. We love people, all people, because God loves them all and God made them all. We want all of them to flourish under God's loving rule. And we love God because we love to be merciful. And we avoid sin because we love God. We hate division because we love God. We love conversions because we love God. We repent, if you're me, a lot because we love God. And like God, we don't love disobedience. We do not love cruelty. We do not love to dishonor others. We do not love malice. We take no pleasure in the death of the wicked because we love God. So a person can believe in God and still not be a Christian. That's kind of easy. But you cannot love God without being a Christian because God loved you first. He loved you first. And secondly, God's love changes us. Isn't that true? I mean, think of it this way. When you got married and you had kids, the love there changed you. And well, it should. I imagine that love uh, still does. You're becoming a better lover. And frankly, we stabilize ourselves on that by letting the Bible tell us, hey, Christian, you were loved by God first. So stabilize yourself on that. Therefore, you love him now. So don't boast about your love for God. Just boast about your God's love for you and then love God. And the rest of the verses in chapter 8, they do not take away any of that. It only grounds us deeper and deeper in the love of God. And so when suffering comes... Right? When it comes, your love for God and the things that God loves, if you would, about you, which is everything, it all remains. Listen to your Bible, 1 Peter 1, 7. These sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's our first point. He loved you first, so you love him now. Second, he called you for his purpose. Okay, have a look down if your Bibles, please. That's the end of verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. And you ask yourself, okay, what is God's purpose? Verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So I want you to walk with me here. A Christian's love for God is, marked, is a mark, an indication of God's prior love for them. That was our first point. And in that love is the purpose for Christ to have many, many brothers and sisters. That's the end of verse 29. Conformed to his image, yes, but a double yes to belonging to his family. 
The strength there is real. And that begins verse 28. Again, those who have been called according to his purpose. So what we have in our God is quite frankly a purpose-driven God who calls. Now, in the Bible, there, there is calling in a general sense of people hearing the gospel plead to repent, to cry out and ask Jesus for mercy and save them from the wrath to come because of their sin. And so people hear the call, they hear the gospel, but not all accept that call. I'll give you one example, Acts 17, Paul preaches in Athens. This is an apostle now. But verse 24 says, only some of them believed. All were called, repent, but only some believed. That is calling in a general sense. However, and this is important, in the epistles, okay, which Romans and Ephesians and so on, in the epistles, the word call or calling, they are always used in a specific sense. And that specific calling, which Paul is referring to here, that is a work of God. If you like, a work which begins with God. So, If our ability to love God begins with God, the idea here Paul is trying to convey is our calling and God's purposes do so as well. A calling God who has a purpose. He called and his purpose was accomplished. For example, and this, by the way, has nothing to do with evangelism, right? This is in the gospel, what we're saying here. This, this is in the, this in the sense of, uh, not in the sense of evangelism. This is simply post-conversion truth. And we're given this truth, and it's meant to stabilize us and assure us that nothing can separate us from God's love as a result of our conversion. Okay? So listen to your Bible. This is 2 Timothy 1.9, please. He has saved us, and he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Why? Why do we thank God? Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that, uh, that calling, that you might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Another, Ephesians 1.11, in him, in, in him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to his purpose, in conformity with the purpose of his will, for the praise of his glory. Same book, different chapter, chapter 3, verse 11. Paul is speaking of his own life and his own ministry was according to God's eternal purpose that he, God, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Final example, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. It starts off, to God's chosen. To God's chosen. And you see, in this good news, there is no randomness here in God's purpose for his children, none. Every believer, because this is the point here, Every believer, every believer stands irrevocably in this truth. So what Paul is saying is every possible situation which might turn you away from God or God from you will not. It will not. You are safe, Christian, 
in Christ. You have nothing to fear. This is the synergy of God working all things for good for all those who love him, those he called for his purpose, that if you would, we are in an environment now as Christians right now where there is no condemnation to fear. That's always going to be true. There is nothing to fear in eternity. There's nothing to fear in death. There is nothing to fear in time, in people. There's nothing to fear from the afflictions that we must endure in this life. If you would, in a sense, and this has been repeated often, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Because God is working every, every one of those situations, in every one of those situations, in all things for the good. Because all of our life, this is everyone in this room that belongs to Jesus Christ, all of our life hangs on one purpose. That's singular there. It's not purposes, it's one purpose. On the purpose of God, which is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ can have lots of brothers and sisters who, by the way, he's not ashamed of. Hebrews 2, 9 and following. He called you according to, for his purpose. And that takes us to our final point. He, he knew you before you knew him. This is verses 29 and 30. And just let me give you, we're going to go through them and then we're going to go through them again next week. But you see them there and I think you'll understand why. For, you see the first word for in verse 29? Okay, so this means it's still tied to 28. This is not a new thought. This is a, this is a thought that he's continuing. For, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then it goes on. Those he predestined, he called, and so on. Okay, you see that word foreknew? To know before. God pre-knowing all things. So God has never looked into the future and learned anything at all. Okay, God has never looked into the future and learned anything at all. God is all-knowing. God is omniscient, foreknew, predestined, predetermined. The word there in the Greek is where we get our word horizon. Okay, pre-limits, predetermined is the idea. Now, here's the thing. In our Western culture, and I think this is fair to say, this promise of God working in all things for the good for the Christian, it can raise issues. And I say this because as a Western culture, things like this bother us. I mean, when you say foreknowledge and predestination and calling and election and, and God working everything out according to the plan, a lot of people are bo bothered by that. But I want you to know there are other centuries and there are other cultures that this did not and this does not bother at all. I mean, this is primarily a problem for a Western, enlightened, droughts, individualist people. You know, we've heard time and time again, you are the master of your fate, and you're the captain of your destiny. And it's right to remember that, so that their great objections that they have, it's not like all over the place. It's not absolute. And we have to be careful not to absolute any of our objections about anything. Now... Those objections, they rise out of, out of culture, and we, so we need to talk with them, and we need to deal with them. But we're not the only culture, and we're not the only people in the world, and we shouldn't, therefore, 
think this is some kind of insurmountable obstacle to faith or insurmountable obstacle to, to Christian unity. It is not. It is not. However, here's the thing that modern Western people say when they hear that Jesus Christ will keep you in God's love so that no matter what you do, you, he will never stop loving you and, and, he, and he'll never stop loving you no matter what. And he's in total control. So, so in everything, he's working out everything according to his plan. This is what they say. Well, what about free will? And what about human responsibility? Because it sounds like God is doing his thing despite our choices and that everything's going to happen, happens in spite of our choices. And if that's the way it is, then who cares how we live? You've probably heard that before. Who cares what you do? If it's all going to happen anyway, I mean, what's the use? So I'm a Christian now, and, and I guess it doesn't really matter. I don't have to do anything because it's gonna, God's going to keep loving me, and, and everything is working out according to God's plan. Well, then what does it matter how I live? And again, the question comes, and it's a good one. Well, what happens to free will, and what happens to personal responsibility? But, and I need you to bear with me here, that's not a question only religious people in the West are asking, okay? New York Times had an article a while back in its science section, and listen to what it, the title, The Power of Free Will. Now you have it, now you don't. And it was a kind of survey of the current debate, not in the churches and not in religion, but in science and in philosophy about whether we actually had free will or, or have free will or not. And the consensus of the scientists and the people in the article was, we, we don't have free will. So, so the, now the question scientists are asking, like right now, do we have free will or are we determined by our evolutionary biology? And the argument goes like this, okay, natural selection, the, the motor of evolution, evolution, is that what determines everything? So we think we're choosing love, to love someone, or we think we're falling in love with someone, uh, or we think we're choosing things, but actually we're hardwired to do this, so we just want to pass on our genetic material is what they say, it's also, ah. Uh, but anyway, we just want to pass on our DNA, it's a survival thing, so we don't really have free will, we just have like instinct. So that's the debate in science now. Okay, we have free will. Maybe are we hardwired by our biology? But here's the thing. 40 years ago, the argument was not a biological one, but it was a psychological one. The argument was Freudian. And so when they asked, do we have free will or are we completely controlled by our, our urges, our unconscious urges who, uh, in other words, uh, are we controlled by our past? Are we controlled by the places we were raised or the environment that we are in? Things like that. Because we're, you know, they would say, are you destined to be a certain way because of where you were put or who raised you? Now, here's the thing, and, and thank you for your patience. The thing that you always hear in those debates is it always has to be either or. Either, either we have free will or everything is predetermined. Either or. Or put it this way. Either we believe we have free will and we are responsible for our choices and our choices matter and, the, and that means the future is open and the future is undecided or something has set and fixed the future and then our choices don't really matter. So it's always either or. And sometimes it's that way in... Christian's life, but, but in the Bible, it is never either or. 
It is never either or. From the beginning to the end, in principle and practice, it is always this. Yes, you are a free and you are responsible individual and your choices matter and you're responsible for your choices and no one is forcing you to make those choices. And yet, and this is the mystery, and yet every single thing that happens as a result of your choice is working out exactly, Romans 8.28, according to the plan of God. And it's not, not just that God foresees what you're going to do, but rather you do fit in, what you do fits in with the plan that he wants and the course that he wants for history to, to, to take for our good according to his purpose. Now, you have to think with me. We're going to think biblically now. Proverbs 16.1, okay, so let's, first of all, let's, this is the principle. To man belongs the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Verse 9, the heart of man plans its way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. Okay, so to you belongs the plans of your heart, but what you do as a result of the plan comes from God. To you belongs your plans, but when you actually speak or act, that always fits in with God's plan, always. Now, that is astonishing. On the one hand, your plans, your choices, they belong to you. They're yours. You're not strong-armed anything. God is not doing it for you. You can't say, well, I couldn't help it. They're your plans. You are free. You are responsible. And yet, the result is exactly what God wants. Again, Romans 8, 28, for the good. Now, you say to yourself, okay, how can that be? But let me ask you, why does it always have to be either or? Can't God, I mean, isn't it possible that God could actually work all things out and at the same time not violate your free will? I mean, why couldn't God do this? Well, you say, well, I can't imagine how I could. Well, that's, of course you can. But you're not qualified for the job of being God. You see, the relationship of free will and human responsibility and God's sovereignty and control over thing is what is called, and and forgive me, it's called an antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. An antinomy means that this is not a contradiction, but it appears like it is. One example, then right to the Bible. Think of light. (laughs) Quantum mechanics tells us light sometimes behaves as waves and sometimes as particles. We don't know how that can be. But it is. And we work within that framework. And if we don't, then we can't handle light right. So there's not contradiction here. It just appears like it is one. And we just just don't have the knowledge to figure it out. Okay, so on one hand, again, God is setting and fixing absolutely everything the way he wants it to be. And he doesn't do this despite our choices, but through our choices. And our choices are part of his plan. And you say... So he just knows what we're going to do. Well, it's much more than that. You kind of like either or again. No, both. And here's a perfect example, John chapter 6. Listen to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Human responsibility, free will. Same chapter, he also says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Divine sovereignty. God's choosing. He said, also, Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, sends me draws them. Divine sovereignty. He also said, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Divine sovereignty. He also says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life, you have no life in you. Human responsibility. 
He also said near the end of chapter 6, this is what I told you, that no one could come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Divine sovereignty. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. Human responsibility. You've got to make that choice. He also said, everything is in the Son's hand. Divine sovereignty. He also said, same chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Human responsibility. Now, do you remember the text that I read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14? Listen to it again. We always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Divine sovereignty. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Divine sovereignty. And through belief in the truth. Human responsibility. And so maybe, maybe the best example of this idea of an antinomy, this, this doesn't have to be either or, it's both, is in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, human responsibility, to those who believed in his name, human responsibility, he gave the right, divine sovereignty, become children of God, children born of natural, of, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, Divine sovereignty, children born of God. So you see, the Bible has these two tracks running parallel. Our God is sovereign. God is in charge. He is Lord. He is king. He is father. His will will be done. So God has never looked into the future and learned anything. And yet also human responsibility. We make choices, and as a result, we are morally responsible agents for our decision-making And sometimes people emphasize one and sometimes the other, but both are in the Bible. Both are in the Bible. Here's a great illustration. Uh, Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, a long, long time ago, someone said, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said, and sometimes I wish I was Charles Spurgeon, he said, I don't have to. I, I never have to reconcile friends. If it's in the Bible, it's a friend. It's not a foe. And I need to close, but but I think you believe this already. Do you you believe that God is sovereign in the world? I hear it all the time from everybody in this church that belongs to Jesus Christ. God, you're in control. God, you're in control. What does that mean? Right? Ask yourself, do you give thanks to God for your conversion? Or the conversion of others? Why do you do that? Ask yourself, do you pray for the conversion of others? Why do you do that? And if our conversion was only human responsibility, and then with this we'll close, that God looked in time and saw people choose them, then he predestined them. If if that is the only thing, then it's all on man. And so this means that when God made the new heaven and the new earth, he made it with the possibility that there would be no one there to enjoy it. And when Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross for sins, it could have been for nothing. There's more to discuss. Lord willing, we will next time. But there's some things we need to think about. As we never doubt the love of God for us in Christ. Thanks for your attention. Let's, let's pray.
and we're just going to let our prayer be our benediction. And it's right from the Bible. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your paths, God, beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from God and through God and for God are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.